The purpose of this activity is to expand the reach of chest content through awareness, critique, and discussion. All articles have undergone peer review for methodological rigor and audience relevance. Any views asserted are those of the speakers and are not endorsed by chest. Listeners should be aware that speakers' opinions may vary and are advised to read the full corresponding journal articles for complete context. This content should not be used as a basis for medical advice or treatment, nor should it substitute the judgment used by clinicians in the practice of evidence-based medicine. Well, hello, and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Gretchen Winter. On behalf of Chest, I would like to welcome you to this Chest Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Gretchen Winter, your Chest podcast moderator. Thank you all for joining us today for what will be an important discussion of factors influencing clinician well-being during this pandemic. We are very fortunate today to have Dr. Kelly Varanis and Dr. Michelle Coe as our guests. Dr. Varanis and her colleagues wrote an article for the Chest Journal, The Influence of the COVID-19 Pandemic on Intensivist Well-Being, a Qualitative Study. Dr. Varanis is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at Oregon Health and Science University and a staff physician at the Portland VA Medical Center in Portland, Oregon. She is also a critical care health services researcher and core investigator at the Center to Improve Veteran Involvement in Care in Portland. Dr. Coe and Dr. Julie Reed wrote an editorial, Implications of the COVID-19 Pandemic on the Well-Being of the ICU Workforce, Considerations for the ICU Interprofessional Team. Dr. Coe is a physical therapist at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, and is an associate professor in the School of Rehabilitation Science at McMaster University, also in Hamilton. She also holds a Canada Research Chair in Critical Care Rehabilitation and Knowledge Translation. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this great work. Absolutely. I'm very excited. So to get started, Dr. Varanis, I personally think that this is a very important topic, but let's start by discussing your why. Why did you decide to research this topic? What was your question and why is it important? Yeah, so thanks again. Um, so when we started out with a study, I was really fortunate, fortunate to collaborate with a really amazing group of clinicians and researchers on the study. Um, a large number of my co-authors are intensivists like me, and we were experiencing the pandemic from the front line, really taking care of patients in the ICU with very little guidance and a lot of fear at the time the study was done, because this was uh, pretty much in the first surge of the pandemic in mid-2020. Um, you know, many of us were either seeing reports of hospitals being overwhelmed in places like New York, or we were already experiencing it ourselves, and we didn't have any clear guidance on how to best provide high-quality care that we wanted to during times of this strain um, and uncertainty. So in response to this, I had anecdotally noticed sort of informal groups of clinicians getting together across the country on kind of an ad hoc basis um, to provide a forum in which we could share experiences and learn from each other regarding how our different hospitals were responding to the pandemic. And so with that in mind, my group of co-authors thought it would be important to more systematically study how hospitals in different regions and with different resources were responding to the pandemic 
and how these responses were perceived by the frontline clinicians with regard to what worked well and what worked less well. And also, you know, around the time that we were designing this, we were recognizing in ourselves and each other how much the pandemic was really negatively impacting us and um, our well-being and mental health. And so we felt that it was really important to use this as an opportunity to also better understand how those hospital responses influenced our well-being, ideally with the goal of identifying potential strategies to improve well-being and help preserve our workforce moving forward. I love it. So, Dr. Coe, you mentioned how burnout is not a personal failing or a lack of resiliency, and it cannot be solved with self-care alone. I feel like that's such an important concept that's often overlooked, and it contributes to a lack of aggressive interventions to improve the burnout crisis. So what unique things happened during this pandemic that contributed to these worsening levels of burnout? Boy, that is such a complex question, and there's really so much to unpack here. And it's something that Dr. Reed and I really enjoyed reflecting back on as we were preparing the editorial for this really excellent work. If we think about the pandemic, and now that Dr. Varanis was talking about the initial wave, we are still continuing in the pandemic, and we have this overarching theme of these compounding waves. And we have this accumulation of insults over time. And I think this mirrors Dr. Vranis's recent um, answer around these unprecedented challenges. Usually, it's the doctors who are the leads. They, they are the leaders who know how to treat patients and figure out what the care plans are. But we were sort of all in this together. And we had so many unknowns. How do we treat? What's the risk of transmission? We were faced with PPE supply crises in first world countries. There was a scarcity of medications, and there was this overwhelming number of critically ill patients. We heard a lot in the news about, we have more beds, we have more ventilators. But there was such an underappreciation of the expertise required to care for critically ill patients. We experienced massive redeployment. Our colleagues came from different parts of the hospital to help us. And we continue to face important staffing challenges. We're experiencing challenges with myths and disinformation, and unfortunately seeming people demonizing public health measures. And finally, while we were recognized as healthcare heroes, this becomes a burden at times and perhaps leads to an unrealistic notion that we can and should do anything, which compounds a betrayal that we might feel as healthcare professionals when it feels like our community is not doing its part. So, Dr. Baranis, can you please briefly explain your study design for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, so, this was a qualitative study, and as I mentioned earlier, we sought to better understand how hospitals' emergency responses to the pandemic influenced the well-being of frontline uh, intensivists, and also to identify any potential strategies that we could use to improve well-being and help preserve our workforce. So to help answer these questions, we conducted semi-structured interviews of intensivists at clusters of tertiary and community hospitals in six regions across the United States between August and November of 2020. And we used the 4S theoretical framework of emergency preparedness, which is space, staff, stuff, and system, just to help organize our interview guide and to provide some context 
for intensivist perceptions of their hospitals' responses to the pandemic. And we specifically selected regions of the country to include that had experienced those early surges of patients with COVID-19. And in total, we ended up interviewing 33 intensivists from a total of seven tertiary and six community hospitals. And we then used inductive thematic analysis to identify major themes describing that influence of hospitals' emergency responses on intensivist well-being. So you also mentioned that intensivists have higher rates of burnout compared to other specialties and that the COVID-19 pandemic has increased its rates. So why is burnout bad? What outcomes is it associated with? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. Um, It is correct that intensivists have one of the highest rates of burnout compared to other specialties. And I want to take a moment to just highlight what I consider to be really seminal work published by Mark Moss and colleagues in 2016 as part of the Critical Care Society's collaborative in which they both defined burnout and highlighted the prevalence of burnout syndrome among healthcare workers in the ICU. And I think that work was really important because it finally started to, I think, bring awareness to this issue that really threatens the health and well-being of our workforce. So in that, um, they define burnout syndrome as a work-related constellation of symptoms and signs that usually occur in individuals without prior history of psychologic or psychiatric disorders. And it's, and it's notable that it's really triggered by this discrepancy between expectations and ideals of an employee and the actual requirements of their position. And they go on to define the three classic symptoms of burnout syndrome, which include emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, which is defined as kind of a distant or indifferent attitude towards work, as well as a sense of reduced personal accomplishment. And in their call to action, they discuss how burnout syndrome in healthcare workers has been associated with PTSD, alcohol abuse, and even suicidal ideation. And notably, I think um, they also note, and there's, there's a lot of evidence that burnout syndrome impacts the quality of care we actually deliver to patients. And in fact, burnout syndrome among nurses and physicians has been associated with increased number of medical errors as well as lower patient satisfaction. And it also comes at a high cost for healthcare systems. So practically speaking, burnout leads to high turnover rates and that's expensive for healthcare systems to have to train and replace staff and that's particularly acute among ICU nurses. So I think because we know, based on that work and others, that uh, healthcare workers, particularly those in the ICU, were already experiencing high rates of burnout before the pandemic, they're likely you know, at the, among the highest risk of having that burnout exacerbated as a result of the pandemic and the strain we've all experienced. And indeed, we're now seeing this mass exodus of healthcare workers leaving bedside medicine and the ICU in particular. And I really believe, unfortunately, that we're going to, that's going to have profound impacts on our ability to provide high-quality critical care in months and years to come due to this pretty abrupt loss of so many cumulative years of experience. So the first theme you identified were these contributors to moral distress. And you discussed that these contributors included restrictive visitor policies, a fear of becoming infected, allocation or scarce resources, and the use of these off-label therapies. So how did study participants feel that these things contributed to their moral distress? Yeah, so thank you for that question. Um, In our analyses, definitely contributors to moral distress um, was a major theme identified. Um, And just to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, moral distress has been defined as when an individual feels unable to take an action that they feel is ethical and appropriate. So in our study, some of these, um, some of the moral distress experienced by intensivists uh, included, or the, um, I'm sorry, a cause of moral distress experienced by intensivists was restrictive visitor policies. So this came up over and over and over again in, in every interview we did. 
Um, so study participants felt that restricting visitors really resulted in unintended but quite harmful consequences, not just for patients, but for their families and clinicians alike. So kind of all three stakeholder groups involved in care of critically ill patients were all harmed, as, and that was a perception of, of our study participants. Uh, so at the level of the patients, uh, a lot of participants commented on how restricting visitors really, they felt contributed to delirium in the patients in the ICU, not having their families at the bedside to ground and orient them. Um, they also felt like it prolonged suffering of patients who were at the end of life because families weren't at the bedside and kind of couldn't see with their own eyes how truly sick their loved ones were. And when it comes to families, our study participants talked about how restricting visitors really threatens communication and the ability to establish that therapeutic relationship with families, um, such that families were often very distrustful um, of the care team because, again, they weren't there to talk with them and see them and communicate directly. Um, and then clinicians, clinicians themselves felt that restricting visitors was, quote, barbaric. That term was used more than once. Um, and they often commented that it felt like that robbed ourselves or as healthcare workers of our own humanity. And I think some of the most notable quotes in the study were from participants who felt that it was so traumatic for them to watch patients die alone that they ended up breaking their own hospital policy to let families in the back door so that they could have a chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. And, you know, I do think it's important to recognize that restricting visitors was, had, you know, was well-intentioned and has a lot of face validity to try to minimize virus transmission and conserve PPE. As Dr. Cole mentioned, we were in the middle of a PPE crisis, but our findings have really made me question whether the benefits of restricting visitors outweighs the risks. And then additionally, we did this study, as I mentioned earlier, before vaccines were available and when PPE shortages were widespread, and many intensivists really struggled with that fear of becoming infected or bringing it home to their family, trying to sort of balance their own intrinsic call to duty um, with their um, own sort of desire to, for self-safety and preservation and for that of their family. And they also noted that even if hospitals didn't get to the level of explicitly allocating scarce resources during surge events, intensivists frequently experienced the need to implicitly triage which patients would receive limited resources, like dialysis machines and some things that were less commonly talked about in the lay press. And that was based on their own perceptions of who would benefit the most. And that really prompted concerns among our study participants about whether they were abiding by principles of fairness and justice, which they sought to do, but they felt like they, they questioned their ability to do so in the midst of the pandemic. Now, Dr. Ko, in your editorial, you discussed how restrictive visitation policies affected patients, families, and staff. Can you please discuss that? Oh, thank you for this, this great, great question. The restricted visitation policies really reinforce the critical role of patients' loved ones as essential partners in healthcare. And as Dr. Vranis mentioned, if we think back, these restrictive visitation policies were initially enacted to help prevent disease spread. In terms of staffing, I'd like to point through the listeners to an excellent research program led by Dr. Kirsten Feist. Dr. Stefana Moss and Dr. Carla Krulak from the, and the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. They studied ICU and hospital visitation policies during the pandemic. And we think about staffing. I completely agree with the challenges that Dr. Vranis just mentioned. And Dr. Feist and her team identified that there was an important need to improve the communication of the visit restricted visitation policy and any changes to the staff. 
that we need specific strategies as staff members for policy implementation and how to apply them consistently. Remember how short staff we were and are now? We were now then adding on a group of patient of people to implement policy. So some practical things that Dr. Feist and colleagues recommend were to have a designated staff member to consistently apply the policy and also have specific and a transparent process to request exemptions to the policy. If we think about families, we can't underestimate the impact of a critical care admission on caregiver well-being. And I'll point to some seminal work that was led by Drs. Jill Cameron and Dr. Margaret Harridge, published in the New England Journal, where 43% of caregivers with patients of their loved ones admitted to the ICU reported high levels of depressive symptoms at one year. And the variables that were associated with worse mental health outcomes included younger age, less sense of control over life, and less social support. And if we reflect on the conditions of the pandemic, we will have a very large population at risk for mental health concerns. And finally, if we think about patients, Dr. Vranis thought, uh, mentioned that there was thought of increased delirium. And in fact, some really landmark work that was led by Dr. Poon and colleagues studied 2,000 patients admitted at 69 ICUs during the pandemic. And in fact, family visitation was associated with a lower risk of delirium. These restricted visitation policies limited the number of loved ones who could see their, their, their people in person. And we learned that the loved ones are so integral to the care and recovery of critically ill patients. They're the ones who know their people best. They can be the cheerleader during weaning from mechanical ventilation and rehabilitation and a welcome distraction while someone is building up endurance as they're sitting up in the chair. So, Dr. Varanis, the second theme that you identified was contributors to burnout symptoms, which included emotional exhaustion due to the illness severity and the pandemic duration, reduced personal accomplishment that was associated with these feelings of helplessness, and depersonalization that manifested as these negative attitudes towards colleagues. Can you please discuss those a little? Absolutely. Um, so, yes, we did identify several factors leading to burnout symptoms as described by the intensivists that were included in the study. So, uh, for example, the sheer number of dying patients caused substantial emotional exhaustion and really distinguished the pandemic from other experiences of caring for critically ill patients. And indeed, I think as intensivists, we're used to a certain degree of death and dying, but this was really on a scale that most of us had never seen before. And the novel nature of the virus without any evidence-based therapies that we knew about early on left many just feeling really helpless. And then additionally, as uh, in, in line with what Dr. Co mentioned earlier, the duration of the pandemic has really worn us down over time. And again, I'll note that we did this study after you know, several months had passed, and I can only imagine what it would be like if we repeated it now, almost three years into the pandemic. Um, in fact, one participant said, the fight or flight response can only last so long, but the chronic stress of having to do this over and over again without a solution at the end of the tunnel really adds to the strain. Um, and then additionally, I think, especially for colleagues who, um, for intensivists and other healthcare workers who are really at the front line at the bedside, taking care of patients with COVID, I think there was some 
they, they noticed when their colleagues who weren't necessarily required to see patients at the bedside, when they would do everything to avoid it as possible. And it got to a point where they commented like, you know, is you, you're not willing to come into the room, but I'm expected to. And that, that feels like somehow I'm less valued than you. So I think there was some, that sense of kind of negative attitudes towards colleagues. Some people did comment on that. Um, I think, you know, I see nurses in particular, the ones who are in the room all the time, respiratory therapy as well. Um, we're really vulnerable to feeling that um, throughout the pandemic. So I think those are all some of, some examples of contributors that uh, towards burnout that were reported by our uh, study participants. And the third theme you identified was long-term impacts of the pandemic on the critical care workforce. So what concerns did the ICU staff have? Yeah, so unfortunately, uh, many participants really lost trust and felt undervalued by their institutions for a variety of reasons. So early on, um, as we talked about earlier, healthcare workers were called heroes who stepped up to care for patients during times of incredible uncertainty. But over time, this seemed to kind of turn into expectation of self-sacrifice, sometimes to the point of self-detriment that was either unrecognized or sometimes ignored by institutions. And kind of a concrete example of this was clinicians' perceptions in our study that hospital administrators didn't really prioritize their safety when it came to availability and the use of PPE. So one participant said, quote, we never, we were told we never ran out of PPE, but there were plenty of times that it wasn't available. So sort of this disconnect between what the institution was saying and doing and what the frontline clinicians were actually experiencing. Furthermore, several physicians reported having their benefits or salaries cut. Um, and while I don't think, you know, money, most would say they're not in this for money, but I think that just represented um, a sense that we weren't valued or the, the participants weren't valued for, um, for the hard work. And that really harmed their morale. And overall, I think um, the study participants felt like the sacrifices they were making for the patients, often again at the expense of their own safety or the well-being of their families, could be underrecognized or taken for granted by hospital leadership. And I think those feelings really do seem to contribute to burnout as well, and ultimately attrition um, among healthcare workers. Finally, additionally, many participants commented on how they witnessed changes in their own friends and colleagues, things like less laughter, fewer smiles, more tears, noticing their friends were more withdrawn, really prompting concerns among the intensivists we interviewed that their friends and colleagues were developing PTSD, depression, or other mental health conditions. Um, and I think, so taken together, it was just um, a lot of concern about the long-term impact of the pandemic, that it really threatened the longevity of our critical care workforce. And the final theme you identified was targeted interventions to address clinician well-being and morale as perceived by the intensivist. So what interventions did participants find particularly helpful? Yeah, so I think this is really important um, because it's, it is important to comment on what gone wrong, but it's really helpful and hopeful, I think, to look forward and, and identify opportunities to improve our well-being that are actionable. So interestingly, participants in the study were able to identify factors kind of at multiple levels. So at the level of the individual, the department, the hospital, and even the community that improved morale and well-being. So to kind of go through these, at the individual level, many did find it helpful if mental health providers proactively reached out to frontline clinicians rather than relying on the frontline clinicians to seek help. And I think that proactive um, reaching out and even educating clinicians about the possibility of moral distress and burnout 
can help raise awareness and reduce some of the stigma associated with it. And then at the departmental level, several noted that the pandemic um, forced the creation of formal backup or jeopardy systems for physicians. And this is really in sharp contrast to what I have, what I and most other physicians I know have experienced throughout our training, that there's this sort of universal expectation that physicians work even when they themselves are sick. So in that way, the pandemic actually kind of created a shift and a new culture of psychological safety in which it was okay to say that we couldn't work because we were sick. Um, and, and that was really welcomed. So I think that's something that we could take moving forward is actually think through and, and getting permission for us to, to not be okay and to not work um, during those times when we need to pull back a little bit. Um, intensivists also felt it was helpful to reduce the number of consecutive days worked in a row and also have that time recognized or extra time that we work recognized by the institution such that if you do put in extra hours or extra days, you don't just go back to your normal schedule as planned after that you know, service block is done, but rather you have actual time off in reciprocation to sort of recuperate from that extra time spent. And then at the hospital level, participants felt it was helpful for the institution to establish systems and protocols that explicitly excluded the treatment from making decisions about allocation of scarce resources in order to help reduce conflicts of interest and try to mitigate some of that moral distress that they could feel during times of strain. And then finally, what really struck me was just the simplicity of meeting the basic needs of staff and how far that can go. So clinicians really appreciated these small but tangible gestures of appreciation from the hospital things that made lives just a little bit easier and a little bit more enjoyable for them, like free parking or food on site, childcare, even alternative housing to enable providers to isolate from their families if needed. Those sorts of actions really demonstrated in meaningful ways that clinicians were valued by their institutions. And what were some of the limitations of your study? Yeah, so a major limitation of the study is that we only included intensivists. And while we designed the study that way just because it was what was within our scope at the time, uh, we recognize that part of what makes the ICUs so, such an amazing place to work is the multidisciplinary nature of the team. So I, I really think, you know, we're missing the voices of our nurse colleagues and respiratory therapy and physical therapy colleagues and other staff that are so integral to providing the best care we can for patients. So I think that's one major limitation. We also conducted it early on in the pandemic, and it doesn't capture sort of changes in hospital responses and intensivist perceptions over time. And then finally, I'll just mention, we did not quantitatively measure burnout or moral distress. Those were just themes that emerged really prominently throughout the interview process. So what does your study specifically add to the literature around end-of-life discussions in the ICU? What is its unique contribution? Yeah, I think I would agree with Dr. Koh that our study, in addition to some of the other work that she mentioned, has really reinforced how essential families are in the care of hospitalized patients in general. And in the setting of this study in which all hospitals restricted visitors, um, study participants, again, gave these examples of how patient suffering was prolonged because families weren't at the bedside to see how really sick they were. And as such, as several participants actually described the need to be more paternalistic during discussions about withholding or withdrawing life support among critically ill patients at the end of life. And in this way, I think the pandemic sort of swung the pendulum back in the direction of paternalism when it comes to end-of-life care in the setting of families 
being, you know, not being allowed to visit in the ICU. So I think that's one kind of interesting finding, and we'll see how that plays out over time now that hospitals are opening back up to visitors. So there are obviously concerns that this pandemic might accelerate shortages of the critical care physician workforce, and we can't change what happened, but what things can we be doing now to help minimize this? Yes. So again, I appreciate this question. Um, So as I mentioned before, really meeting the basic needs of healthcare workers, coupled with small gestures to show that they're valued by the institution, I think really goes a long way. Um, So again, free parking, food, little things like that demonstrate what I would call a degree of institutional compassion for workers. And I believe that can make a really big difference for worker morale that translates into a healthier workforce and potentially better outcomes for patients and their families. And then I also think it's important to apply some of these lessons learned moving forward um, as part of efforts to minimize the attrition of our critical care workforce beyond the current pandemic. So for for example, this current study that we're discussing today, and then another that we recently published in CHESS last year, we identified both communication and transparency as key factors in establishing trust between hospital administration and frontline staff. And taken together, this work has really led me to believe that the involvement of clinicians as stakeholders in key decisions um, with two-way communication between frontline workers and administration, as well as closed feedback loops, are really crucial as part of efforts to create a more efficient and higher quality healthcare system that prioritizes both the health of patients and the health of healthcare workers. Um, I really believe that healthcare workers need to know the institution is not only listening to them, but actually taking action according to that feedback. So if we really want to address burnout among ICU clinicians, I do believe we need to focus less on things that the individual clinician can do and more on what the institutions can do at a systems level to show support and value for their workforce. 100% agree. So Dr. Coe, you also discussed the need to remember other members of the interprofessional critical care team and to consider their well-being as well as we move forward. So what are some practical ways that we can help work on this issue together? Thank you for this great question. I agree with Dr. Vranis' earlier comments about our, we are a team. And I really love working in the ICU because we work together as a team to help the patient through their critical, critical illness. It's a very special environment. We share the highs and the lows of a patient's journey and we all have our part to help patients during their critical illness. I'll also reinforce that the interprofessional team includes respiratory therapists, pharmacists, therapists, dietitians, occupational therapists, speech-language pathologists, physician physician assistants, and as a group, we are outnumbered by physicians and nurses. So for every seven doctors in the United States, there is one respiratory therapist. For every four doctors in the United States, there is one physical therapist. And this study that Dr. Vranis and colleagues led really helped. I really personally identified with many of the stress issues. And we're all experiencing similar challenges and burnout, lack of staffing, and our own personal situations affected by the pandemic. Practically, I feel that we are an ICU community. We collectively experience the pandemic. As a community, we need to heal and recognize the similarities in the human experiences that occurred during this pandemic. We oftentimes highlight the interdisciplinary 
nature of the different perspectives that we bring to the bedside. I feel that those things are very important. However, pertaining to the pertaining to the pandemic, I feel that we are united by our humanity, working through the pandemic together and supporting each other as we all heal. So, Dr. Varanis, where do we go from here? How do we use your findings to improve care? And what studies need to happen to advance this research? Yeah, thank you for this question. Um, so for me, some key takeaways of the study include um, a lot of the issues around restrictive visitor policies. I think we need to more carefully consider the risks and benefits of restricting visitors before widespread implementation of these policies. And in fact, I think one interesting area of future research, although challenging, but I would love to try to do this, is to actually quantify the risks and benefits to help guide future hospital responses to public health emergencies. And in addition, I think more research is needed to better understand how to effectively and systematically engage families of patients across different healthcare settings, whether that's in the ICU or the floor or even other healthcare settings, such as nursing homes, which really suffer during this as well. And I also think our study raised some interesting questions about potential ways to modify or restructure our ICU staffing models to hopefully improve both patient care and staff well-being. And then finally, I do think it's imperative, as I mentioned earlier, for hospital leaders to reflect on what's gone well and what hasn't gone well at their own institutions. Again, incorporating feedback from their frontline staff and turning that feedback into actionable change. So as we finish up this discussion, can you each please give our listeners a closing thought on what you want them to take away from our discussion? Dr. Varanis? Sure. Um, again, I just want to thank you so much for the opportunity to discuss our work today with you both. I've really enjoyed the, the discussion. Um, and I just want to thank our larger critical care community for their tremendous work over the last several years. Um, I do think there's a lot of healing to be done together. Um, and really, COVID has revealed or brought to the surface much of the moral distress and burnout that was already simmering you know, pre-pandemic. And I hope that we use what we've learned from these last two years to make necessary changes at the different levels I mentioned, um, including the institutional level, to improve the well-being of healthcare workers and patients alike. And Dr. Koh. Again, I echo the, um, our gratitude for the opportunity to, to speak. The pandemic really challenged our ICU teams to the very core. I suggest that we continue to do what we do best, be kind to each other, lift each other, others up as people, and work together to improve our collective well-being through, through the pandemic. So I'd like to thank Dr. Varanis and Dr. Koh for a fascinating discussion on a vital topic. And a big thank you to our chess community for joining us. I'm Gretchen Winter, and this is a chess podcast. Until next time.